I'm enjoying myself. It's a beautiful place and beautiful people. I was uh, in month, the end of, end of September, I was teaching a retreat outside Ottawa in a uh, Christian retreat center that we rent on the Ottawa River, very beautiful. And then end of October, I was a retreat, teaching a retreat north of Peterborough in the Dharma Center, another beautiful retreat. Now I'm at Niranara, another beautiful place. And then next month I'm in Malaysia. And then I go back to Thailand, uh, to, Thailand to Canada, I think Canada, do a retreat there. That's my story. You have your story. You did something, you were somewhere, you have relatives, you have responsibilities, you'll be going somewhere. So we all live in stories. But when we're on a retreat, we, we let go of stories and we practice, I'd say, uh, witnessing stream of consciousness. So rather than thinking about my body and I have to go to the dentist and have a health checkup and so on and so forth, I just witness the body as the body. And that's Satipatthana. So Satipatthana is letting go of story and witnessing stream of consciousness. So I suggested to you uh, uh, a practice of knowing bodily feelings and then a practice of what I call full body awareness. That's what I would think means when we talk about body in the body, knowing the body as the body rather than as a concept. So my um, concept would be uh, I'm overweight, I need to stop eating sugar. Okay, that would be part of my story. You probably have the same story. We're all eating too much sugar. Um, but now we're not doing that. I mean, you can do that if you want, but that's not the suggestion. The suggestion is witnessing stream of consciousness. And in stream of consciousness, you have bodily feelings, you have memories, you have data kind of flowing through. And what we're doing now is we're practicing awareness with the perception of change. So I keep saying you're practicing awareness with the body, awareness uh, with whatever, but I think the, heart, the nub, the heart of Satipatthana is, is practicing awareness with the perception of change. You know, if you do that with the perception of change, then you start to emphasize the witnessing rather than the particular experiences and stream of consciousness. So when I'm witnessing body as body, as change, it's no longer, I don't like the body, or the body shouldn't be this way, judgment about it, or uh, definition, or whatever. It's simply knowing body is body. And this is changing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And you begin to sense that the witnessing does not arise and cease. That's the constant. Awareness is the constant. And that awareness, then, is the gateway to Nibbana. That's the gateway to the unconditioned. So the language that really appeals to me, and um, I've used all my monastic life, very much from Ajahn Sumedho's suggestion, when the Buddha attains uh, enlightenment, he then 
There is a statement in the text. He says there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the deathless, the island, the harbor, the refuge, Nibbana, the highest happiness. And, and this language, then, I've always used it as a kind of deep, deep contemplation because it's a very mysterious language. I mean, the highest happiness isn't so mysterious. I think we have to give up on the word Nibbana because it's become so corrupted. So Nibbana might be a health spa or probably a perfume or something. So forget about Nibbana. That's been corrupted. Don't forget about Nibbana, but the word itself has is problematic, at least in Western culture, maybe not in your culture. Um, so you have these other words. You have harbor, island, refuge, and then you have unconditioned, uncreated, unoriginated, unborn, deathless. Um, Amaro, Amrasiri, Amravati. The deathless realm, Amravati. Um, Ajahn Amaro, his uh, auntie was... Uh, I.B. Horner. And I.B. Horner is one of the early translators of the Pali text, and he didn't know that his distant auntie was a Pali scholar. When he became a bhikkhu, he saw this name. He's Horner. That's his lay name. He saw this name, I.B. Horner. And he thought, no, that couldn't be Auntie Irene. Sure it was. That his auntie was a Pali scholar. And I don't know if I have the story right, but I, I think I think they corresponded and she asked him what his name was and he said Amaro. She said, What a ridiculous name. <laughs> deathless. Deathless one. I mean what kind of a name is that? George would be better. Um, but it's a beautiful name. It's a beautiful name. It's a name for aspiration. When you have language like that, unconditioned now, it's not a matter of belief because that's a strange word. Or unborn. Or deathless. What that does for me, it makes me contemplate very deeply. Well, if, that, if that's the way the Buddha is describing the goal, then anything which is born, which is conditioned, which is dependent, I should not be focusing my attention on. Now, when I live my story, I, I focus on those things. Otherwise, I'll miss the plane. Right? So when I live my story, I focused on things and objects and experiences because otherwise I die. I have to. But it, if that is the only thing I do in life, only focus on the objective experiences, then my attention is not available to the unconditioned. So what we're doing, I think, by practicing satipatthana, by witnessing stream of consciousness, we're no longer being preoccupied with the conditions, with the body, with the emotions, um, with our memories. We're knowing them as memories, as emotions, as feelings, just as that. Now that's hard to do. So if you have a memory of resentment, and you got hurt by someone, it's very hard to see resentment as resentment. Because usually what you do is you jump back into the story of me being hurt and betrayed 
and I'm never going to forget that person. I shouldn't be like that. I should be able to forgive them. And we get into this narrative of self. And that's what we're trying to get out of. We're trying to get out of the narrative of self, out of the story, into the witnessing of stream of consciousness. And that's what I'm trying to persuade you to do. And I'm sure you're trying to persuade yourself to do as well. So a taste of that would be um, this meditation today where I emphasized uh, bodily feeling. It's not my body. I'm not emphasizing my body. It's bodily feeling. And the, and the perspective that bodily feeling is in awareness. Now, when I'm living my story, I'm someone living in this body. And I have a passport. And I should be on the rowing machine and so on and so forth. All right? That's true. That's not, it's not false. But there is this other way of looking at it. And that's, I think, what Satipatthana is trying to encourage us to do. So when you lose that perspective of witnessing, you get caught in the story, don't you? Now, and rather than, than giving yourself another story that you shouldn't be lost in the story, this is what we do, we get lost in thought, and then we take another thought and think, why am, I, why am I so lost in thought? I shouldn't be lost in thought. My suggestion is forget about the story. Don't go to thought, go to the body. Go to witnessing, go to awareness. No body is body, emotion is emotion, feeling is feeling. This is hard. This is very hard to do. But um, that, why should it be easy? <laughs> if it was really easy, there'd be lots of enlightened people running around. Yeah? So it is very subtle. Now today I'd like to, I'd like to just work on a word that, that is very confusing for Western meditators, I, I don't quite know how Thais translate this word. So I'm not a Pali scholar, so I have to rely on other people's interpretation of the Pali, right? And when we don't have access to the original texts, we're reliant on translators. And if those translators are inaccurate, well, then we get an inaccurate reading of what the Pali canon says difficulty, but I'm not a very good linguist, and, and so I rely on Lobacha or someone like that, but if I'm looking for uh, what the Pali might have said, I have to rely on others. Um, so I'd like to look at the word uh, Samadhi, and now again, I don't know how you receive, how, how the Thais translate that word, so I can only speak to how uh, it's received in English translations, but I think it's worthwhile pursuing because uh, it's an important word. So uh, I'm sure you're all aware of the Noble Eightfold Path. So you have right understanding, right thought or right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and then right concentration. That's usually the way samasamadhi is translated. And I suggest that that's, for me, that's right concentration isn't a very, very good translation. It's not helpful for me. As I was describing earlier, when I work with a, with a with, I'm cutting wood, then I'm concentrating, but I don't think I'm doing that in meditation. I think I'm more collecting or composing the mind. So 
perhaps we could kind of unpack part of that word. Where, where that word becomes difficult in the, in the English translation, again, I don't know how the Thais translate it, is the word jhana. You say jhan uh, in Thai? Chan, you say chan, okay. So the word jhana usually gets translated in the common translations as absorption. Do you have such a word in Thais? Do you, you, do you use that? Okay, let me, let me just go for it and see what happens. And if it doesn't fit, then throw me out. <laughs> so in the English translations, you have the word jhana is described as absorption. And the idea there is that you concentrate on something, maybe on the breath, and create a nimitta, and you're so absorbed into that that there's no other sense input. Is that a common idea in in Thailand, in meditation? It, does it exist? Okay. So in, in, the, in, in that word, um, the problem is that the way it was uh, interpreted comes from a commentary called the Visuddhimagga. And the Visuddhimagga, you, you have that too, don't you? Which came 6th century AD from a teacher called Buddha Gosha, very famous, and he put together this compilation of practices and teachings from the, from the Buddha. And so he introduced, from my understanding, from what I've read from other scholars, he introduced that word from a Brahmin tradition. And that Brahmin tradition was a concentration practice, so much so that you absorb in the object and the world sort of disappears. But the suttas, the suttas don't use the word from, again, I may be wrong, but this is what I get from my scholarly friends. The suttas use it a different way. And the word jhana just means meditation. So in, in the jhana became dhyana in, in Sanskrit, and chan, which is in, in China, chan, and then zen. So that's the way that the word got transliterated. Now, in... in, in um, the way that the jhana then is described is the jhana factors. And this is important because this describes the kind of positive aspects of meditation which you're trying to develop. Bear with me. I know this is quite academic, but bear with me. It's an important topic. Um, so when you talk about the jhana factors, you talk about vitaka vijara, piti sukha, and ekagata. Maybe you've heard that, that five. So when we talk about meditation, we talk about hindrances, nivarana, and jhana factors. Now, when in, 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 in the English translations, when you talk about jhana, this word ekagata gets translated as one-pointedness. But in the suttas, it's translated as one-placedness like composure, not being scattered. Now, why that's important for me is because one point in this would be I'd have to always be on one point and always focused on one point. And yet that's not what I'm doing when I'm having a shower, right? Or when I'm walking or when I'm eating. What I'm doing is I'm collecting or composing the mind into the present moment. So what happens in that kind of absorption idea is that 
jhana becomes something you only do kind of on a cushion, on a retreat or something. Whereas this other way of thinking about it is something you're doing all, all the time. And I had a, a, a very interesting, uh, I did a retreat last year in, at Mahong Son, and there was a Chinese uh, woman on the retreat who's a, who's a translator of, she's trans, one of the trans, six translators, five translators into Chinese of Lompar Cha's stillness flowing. So very good English. And she learned her uh, basic Buddhism, her Theravada Buddhism, from the, what they call the Agamas. And the Agamas are the Chinese equivalent of our suttas. Okay? And in the Agamas, jhana is always just meditation. It's not absorption. And ekagata is actually collectedness. And we were talking about this, and it was, I found it really fascinating that coming through the Chinese tradition, she agreed with the suttas. Now, this has been very problematic for Western meditators. I don't know if it is for the Thai meditators, because what has happened is there is this belief that you have to get these jhana states and you have to get the first one, and you have to get the third, second one, you have to get the third one, you have to get the fourth one. So there's this idea, I have to get this thing called jhana state. It means I have to absorb into it, and, and then I have to get the second one, third one. And yet, to me, that doesn't seem appropriate to the Buddhist teaching, because the Buddhist teaching for me, it's the hallmark of the Buddhist teaching for me is the capacity to reflect on something. Like, if someone tells me I have to get something, I can't reflect on that. I can only go for it. I don't even know what I'm going for. Also, these jhana states, when it's described from the Misudhi Maga, you have to go into them and out of them. I said, what's that about? Going into something and out of something? Why do you want to do that? And why do I want to hold on to something that changes if I'm looking for the unchanging, unconditioned? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, again, I don't know if you've had this problem, but Westerners have had this problem a lot. And so what happens is, is you get this, because you can't reach these so-called states of jhana and these nimittas and so on, the word, there's no description of nimittas for breath in the suttas. You don't find that in the suttas, you find that in the visuddhimagga. So, so what happens to Western meditators, they keep hearing about this jhana thing, and, and then, well, I haven't got it, so I, I must not be able to do my meditation. And then no one talks about it, right? Let's not talk about this topic. Or someone, some rare person gets it, and they tell you if you've got it or not. That I don't like at all. I don't like to be in the power of someone else. You know, someone says to me, you haven't got it. Mm. Whereas when a teacher gives me a teaching that I can reflect upon, that seems to me authentic Buddhism. So the way Lompo Cha taught us, and where this plays out in modern Buddhism in the West, and I should think maybe Thailand too, is then you start to get this idea of vipassana and samatha being separate things, right? So people say, I don't do samatha, I do vipassana or I don't do vipassana, but actually, from the sutta definition, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. They're one thing. And Lumpa Chao would teach like that. He said, you don't do it separate. 
you know, if your mind becomes more calm, you have more insight. And if you have more insight, you become more calm. It's the only thing that makes sense to me. So there's this kind of confusion. You get this uh, idea, well, and, and where does that confusion come? Because of the idea that samatha is, that, that jhana is absorption. That, you know, when you do jhana, you absorb into these states, and then you come out of them or go in and out of them. Oh, we don't want to do that. We want to do vipassana. So that confusion in, in, in Western culture, I don't know Thai culture, uh, kind of comes to some extent from, from Burma, I think, but, but further back from, from the Visuddhimagga. Whereas in the suttas, the idea that I, like vipassana is not even a big word there, the idea that I do one or the other doesn't exist. It's not there. What you do is you continually use the jhana factors to calm the mind, let go of the hindrances. So if we were to define the, like jhana as, as um, just meditation, that seems to be much more portable, much more doable. And then if, if, if the jhana factors are actually things you can reflect upon, you can begin to apply that all the time, which is to me the teaching always. So vitaka vijara, and what does that mean? So what that, that's thought, that's all it is. So how do you use thought to compose the mind and collect the mind, right? It's not mysterious. Uh, and then when you've used thought well and your mind begins to calm, you begin to think less, don't you? And then after a while you don't need to use thought because your mind is settled. So my suggestion uh, earlier was to uh, use the thought of non-becoming and non-resistance. That to me is vitaka vijara, where I'm putting in language to help me compose the mind. Or I might just put in the, 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 the suggestion here and now, here and now, here and now. That's vitaka vijara. But once my mind is here and now and it's settled and it's settled and settled, I don't have to say that. So thought falls away. There's no need to put thought in there. Then ekigata, um, and again, it gets translated in the Visuddhimagga um, as, it, it's quite a complex etymology, that word, but there, there's a very good um, Malaysian monk, Venerable Kumara, who, who's written a very good paper on, on jhana. You could look that up on the web if you wanted. But ekigata then has this sense of like being in one place being composed rather than scattered. I don't know if you have in, in, in Tide, you say scatterbrained. If someone's like all over the place, that's scattered. And then composed, collected, as opposed to one-pointed. That, that, that is much more useful for me than the other. Much more useful. So then you get these others, piti and sukha, right? Now, a lot of people, they see piti and sukha, they think that's what I'm going to get. And they do get piti you know, every six years. <laughs> or, or, or someone else gets piti, and then you think, I want some piti, right? Like it's a hamburger or something. Uh, or, or you remember some experience of sukha, so I want to get... But isn't that desire then? Isn't that me trying to get something in the future? And if I'm trying to get something in the future, what about akalika dhamma? If I'm sitting here now, trying to get some experience I had or someone told me I should get, then am I not kind of getting reborn? 
into, you know, is that really the, could that be the unconditioned? Could the, un- could the unconditioned be reached in time? It can't be, logically, because that would be conditioned. If it's not here and now, then it cannot be amatadhamma. You have to see the logic of that. That's very, very important. And if you see that, then the whole sense of me trying to get something called piti does not make sense anymore. Because it's becoming, it's tanha, it's time. And akalika dhamma, not a matter of time, has to be here now. So more and more logically you see, well, whatever the Buddha realized has to be here now. And the sense of me moving through time, you begin to let go of that. That does not make sense. So then you start to reconsider, well, what might piti and sukha mean? Well, for me, there must be method. If Vitakavijara's method, and if Ekagata is method, then surely piti and sukha must be method, not result. Now, surely, yeah, we get results of piti and sukha and so on, but what if it's method? What, what, would, what would piti mean as method or sukha, whatever you call it? Well, it's some kind of happiness, okay? Whatever, you, whatever way you want to define it. So what would happiness as method be? Now, that's an interesting question to me, because then I could reflect on it. Well, if I am meditating and my mind wanders off for 10 minutes and then the bell rings and I notice that my mind has wandered around and I say to myself, oh, I'm no good meditator. That's not piti sukha. That's depression. So don't do it. And how might I do well, I might say, oh, good, I'm back. I'm back. I'm home. I'm here. That, to me, would be a method, a method of uplifting the mind, right? A method of happiness. Huh? So the language, you know, you know, if you listen to the language of your mind, is it conducive to uplifting? Or is it conducive to putting yourself down or others down or whatever? And that language would not be part of Samasamadhi. So if we, if we say that Samasamadhi must be functioning all the time, because I, I, I don't see how Samasamadhi could only be something you only do on a meditation retreat or course or, 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 or half hour. It must be all the time. The Noble Eightfold Path, it seems to me, must be functioning all the time. It's the only way it would make sense. So if it's functioning all the time, then every activity of upliftment would be part of the method of samasamadhi. So when you do something beautiful like decorate a shrine with flowers and bow to the shrine with piti, that must be part of samasamadhi. Huh? So your whole life, the good things you do, the moral precepts you keep, caring for your children and your family and your elders in a way which is beautiful, it must be part of samasamadhi. Now sometimes we, we can we sometimes, Westerners can dismiss Asians as saying, oh, they only do dana. Westerners don't get it. <laughs> because dana is quite a happy thing to do. It's beautiful. It uplifts the mind. Yeah? It's a very, very beautiful thing to do. So how much, and, and this isn't just kind of goody good. Oh, we're all happy. Because we're not. We're miserable much of the time. <laughs> you know, we suffer. You know, we have pain and, and our people die on us and then we get cancer and we die. 
So there's lots of suffering going on, but, but, but what, what, what would it mean to uplift the mind? You know, how would you do that? And this is, and this is what we all are trying to figure out. So, say for me, my, one of the strong tendencies I always had is self, self-disparagement and self-criticism. That doesn't make me happy, but it's a habit. So then, you know, I see that habit, and, and, and like if someone compliments me, I'll always say, well, they don't really know me. <laughs> you, know, you can say anything you want to me that's good, and I'll say, no, you don't know me. I'm a bad guy. And that's a habit of mine. Now, I know that habit, but I used to believe in the habit, and that is not samasamadhi, right? So it's not simply a matter of knowing your, like, going away from your thoughts, really knowing your mind, knowing what uplifts the mind, knowing how to move the mind. So Yongpeng's mom doing mudita bhavana is really, you know, it's really skillful. It's really uplifting the mind. If you do that all the time, then meditation is imbued with piti and sukha. You've done the method and it, you know, it starts to click in, starts to click into your life. The, the negative part of the teaching around samadhi is around the hindrances. So that is dullness and restlessness, greed and hatred, and doubt. And, and these are the two kind of reflective vehicles that you find in Theravada Buddhism. So dullness and restlessness are about energy. How do you get the right kind of vitality when you're sitting here or you're doing meditation? So if you're falling asleep, you've got to figure out how to wake up. If you keep looking at the clock every two minutes, you've got to figure out how to settle down. Simple. Not so simple. If you're falling asleep, what you need to do is what? Well, how do you put energy into the system? How do you get vitality into the system? Well, maybe you drink more coffee. <laughs> maybe you have a sleep, right? Uh, and if that doesn't work, you're in trouble. Right? Then you've got to figure out, what is my mind doing? Why does it fall asleep? Falling asleep can be a chronic uh, monastic problem. You know, you see, you see sometimes monks have been meditating 15 years and they're just boo-boo, boo-boo. And, and you think, what? You know, you, you're not aware. What's going on? It becomes a habit, a dull kind of habit. Because sometimes you can, you know, when, when you first start meditating, you're, you have pain which keeps you awake. I remember two, two meditators talking about what they were experiencing on a retreat. And one said, uh, I've got a lot of pain. He says, oh, I had a lot of dullness. You, you've got the good one. You've got pain because at least it keeps you awake. So dullness is a very difficult hindrance. It's a very difficult hindrance because you lose the plot. You just go into gaga land. So what you have to do with dullness is uh, know that, you, you're, that you're dull. What you have to know about sleepiness is know that you're falling asleep. Right? And that's sometimes you don't know. I, I've done that. I've seen that with people. I've, I've, I've seen them nodding away and I say to them, you know, you were nodding. No, I wasn't. <laughs> I was just relaxing. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, and I had that same happen to me when I, maybe my, what, 1977, I think. Someone said to me, you're nodding. No, I'm not. 
proud young monk. No, I'm not. And then, of course, I had a suspicion. Oh, probably nodding. And I didn't know it. I didn't know I was nodding. I was just comfortable. So then I went to visit my parents. And uh, I wanted to see, well, am I really nodding? So what I did is I, when my mom wasn't watching, my dad weren't watching, I sat in front of a full-length mirror. And I set my clock. I usually sat for an hour. I set my clock for 15 minutes. Okay? And then it rang, and I was way down here. And I didn't know it. I was shocked. I said, holy smokes, what are you doing? <laughs> and that shock was very good for me. Because then I thought, no, no, what's, what's going on? And then I put a lot of effort into seeing what's, what's actually happening to my mind. And I, I saw that what I have to do is I have to have more body awareness. And so I began to just like notice my, uh, put a lot of attention on my head. I tried to keep my eyes open. Oh, that's difficult. If you're sleepy, your eyes just weigh like six tons, don't they? Oh, I can't do this. So I just try to keep my eyes open or just focus on my head. Basically bring my attention down from the thinking mind into the body, into the body, into the body. Um, and, and, and then I started to do pranayama, deep breathing, uh, ujjayi pranayama. And I realized I just have to get more vitality, more energy in my breathing. And I just do, I would do deep, deep, deep breathing. Then I started to do just learn how to stretch my spine. I would, I would uh, on the, uh, on the out breath, I would stretch from the bottom half of my body up into the ceiling. I do that for maybe 10. And then on the out breath, from the, from my bottom half of my spine, I'd push down into the cushion. I do that for 10. And I worked on that for half a year. Because this dullness was just really chronic, really, really chronic. But then I figured it out. I got more and more body awareness. I began to see how that happens. I understood at the time of day it happens. And I started to drink a little more coffee. <laughs> to help it along sometimes when you need to. I'm glad the Buddha said didn't make a, anything about coffee. <laughs> but it was an interesting lesson in not being aware. And very interesting. And, and there's some funny, funny stories of monks dealing with, with, with dullness. Uh, Ajahn, the old Ajahnananda who's died since, he, he used to sit beside me and he would take a book. And, you know, we have these bald heads, so there's no friction. He'd put it on his head, right? And then he'd try to sit and he'd go plunk. And i keep, oh, God, here he plunk. <laughs> but the most outrageous one was Ajahn Jagro, who used to be the abbot. Rajan Brahm is, disrobed long ago. He had chronic sleepiness. So he took, <laughs> this is really weird, he took an empty matchbox, and in the empty matchbox, he put a pin. Then he put that empty matchbox on his lap, and then he sat there. I don't know if he worked it out, but it was very, very creative. Now, I don't know if you suffer from, from dullness. You don't have to do that one, but you have to wake up, right? You have to figure out how to do it. Uh, sometimes, you know, the sitting practice isn't, isn't really good. You, you just get too dull. You have to do more walking practice, something like that. But I, maybe tomorrow I'll go through that kind of breathing exercise and, and, and the spine. I find that very, very helpful. 
Restlessness is, is the opposite. The sign of restlessness is, is you know you're there and you, never, you think this is eternal. The one hour feels like six hours because it's, you're restless. You, you, know, you don't want to be here. You keep looking at the clock. You keep moving your posture. You, you have discomfort in the body. Pain can do that. So it's a completely different opposite. But it's still about energy. It's still about energy, but now it's too vibrant. It's too shaky. So what I found with that was don't look at the clock. <laughs> but I found the end of the out-breath very helpful. Just like, because I found at the end of the out-breath, when I'm restless, there's a kind of in, inattentiveness, and the next in-breath comes quickly. So I found by just feeling the end of the out-breath, feel the end of the out-breath, you get all day, nowhere to go, nothing to do. So the language is not about vitality. The language is about nothing to do, nowhere to go, just relax. It's a whole suggestion of relaxing. If you do that when you're dull, you just fall asleep, obviously. So that's Vitaka Vijara, isn't it? It's the use of language and energy and, and, and insight into understanding your own, uh, the way you, your mind meditates, what happens in meditation. The other two, uh, greed and hatred, are common, common things. So greed is always usually fantasizing, fantasizing something. Uh, usually it's an, a creative project or falling in love with someone or they call them, in, in America they call them vipassana romances. So people on a retreat will see another person, they want to know who they are and they'll spend all all retreat getting married to them. <laughs> and that's the bored mind. The mind is just so bored, oh, I might as well get married to that one. And of course then they meet them after the retreat, oh no thanks. <laughs> or, or shopping, right? Or I like to build furniture, so I'll build a table and the bell will ring. Not too much actually. And, and so on and so forth. So that's, that requires renunciation doesn't it? Your mind wants to get reborn into some pleasant experience because meditation is just so bland, right? And as it becomes, it's not, it's not fascinating. So that's where you say, no, I'm not going to get reborn into that. It's not repression, it's just a refusal to not go there, to not go there. I won't get reborn into that. Aversion, usually it's the other way around. When aversion comes up, usually we try to get rid of aversion because it's so unpleasant and so uncomfortable. And, and aversion, you have to treat it with metta. Not replace it, but treat it with metta. So if I'm feeling, you can replace it, but if I'm, if I'm feeling, okay, let's say like betrayal. Betrayal is one of the most difficult human emotions, I think, to deal with because betrayal throws you totally off. You know, if you're betrayed by someone you love deeply, or some, let's say, your whole world system is all of a sudden out of balance. That's why divorce can be so, I've, I've heard, so, so terribly horrible. Um, so if there is something strong like that, some resentment, and that comes up into consciousness, it has, it has a kind of life of its own. It is an energy. If you can witness it in the body, it will go away. If you take it to thought, it won't go away. So you have to kind of allow it to be there and say, may I be free from resentment? 
May I be free from ill will. So you're not saying that you should not feel anger. You're just adding an attitude of metta to this arising of aversion. May I be free from aversion, right? So you're still recognizing this feeling as a natural feeling, but now you're adding to it a different direction. May I be free from anger. As opposed to I shouldn't be angry, I shouldn't be angry, like I shouldn't be angry, but no, that doesn't work because that's still anger. When you say to yourself you shouldn't be angry, you're still angry. Right? And it goes in and out, in and out. But when you say, may I be free from anger, it's a different, and that's what metta is about. Metta is about accepting the way things are and then putting into that an attitude of acceptance and, and kindness. Doubt, the fifth hindrance, doubt is about thought and doubt arises in, excuse me, this is quite long, but bear with me. Uh, doubt, you're going anywhere, you're <laughs> the appointments. <laughs> doubt is, is, is both uh, the fifth hindrance, Nvarna, and also the third fetter, Sanyojana. Right? So doubt is very important because it's about thought. Now, um, as, as I, I assume we're all intellectuals in a sense that we all are, you know, we've had, had a lot of education. So we've had a lot of, uh, uh, of emphasis on analysis and thought and conclusions. Now, to an intellectual, conclusions and answers are pleasant. Chamai? Two and two equals uh, uh, four. Right? That's pleasant. I know the answer. Right? Um, so doubt is unpleasant. And conclusions and answers are pleasant. So when doubt arises as a condition, you don't want it. You want an answer. Now the trouble with that is quite often one question, the worry works this way. Right? Worry is fear-based doubt. Anxiety is fear-based doubt. So you have a problem in the future about your kids, about your health, about your family or whatever, or the monastery. And that worry arises, it's unpleasant, it's a doubt. You don't want it. So what do you do? You think. Well, then I'll do this, and then I'll do that, and then I'll do this, and maybe I'll do that. And you have a list, and you go through the list, and you do that for about two hours, and then you think, oh, now i figured it out. Good. Right? And then you feel peaceful, because you have a conclusion for about five minutes. Right? And then your mind will think, ah, but you forgot that when you do, then this will, and then maybe, and then you're gone for another two hours. Right? And then, ah, got the solution, right? You have the solution, ah, feel good. So you have the solution that is Sukhavedana. And you don't know, that's Dukkavedana. And we like Sukha, we don't like Dukkha. The trouble is, it's endless, isn't it? So how do you resolve worry? You I mean, you, you do due diligence, you do plan. I'm not saying you don't plan. But at some point you say, I'm willing not to know. I'm willing to accept the feeling that I don't know. And that is uncomfortable because anything might happen. The worst might happen. But if you accept the feeling I don't know, you'll adapt. You'll be okay. You're smart, right? You've survived this long. You'll be okay. But if you can sit and know the feeling of not being sure, of not knowing, then you get beyond doubt. 
Not that doubt won't arise, but you know how to deal with doubt as a nivarana, as a hindrance. So if your mind is always thinking all the time, one of the problems is doubt. One of the problems is aversion. One of the problems is, is uh, fantasy. So we're not trying to figure anything out, right? Because thought is still a kanda. Thought is still anicca dukkha nata. We're trying to know thought as thought, and that's hard to do. To know thought as an object, to not be the thinker, very hard to do. We're trying to see the gap, the space between thoughts. So that's been a lot. I hope I've not overwhelmed you. But <laughs> so this is sort of classic um, meditation ideas, uh, and I've introduced this little bit different way of thinking about jhana as a contemplative thing, right? Rather than a th- this other way. So you have the hindrances, and then you have the, the jhana factors. Vitaka vijara, how do you use thought skillfully to collect the mind, to compose the mind? Piti sukha, what is the method of uplifting your mind, making it happy? Huh? What is, how do you do that as, as a tool? And then this ekagata is like collectedness or composure. So I'll leave that for your reflection tonight.